Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much. You guys keep me going. I have been in a bit of a funk, a bit of a rut. I don't know what happened. I think it's a seasonal thing. I got burnt out. I've been really busy putting together the stand-up science stuff, and I just kind of was burnt out, but I, I just wanted to turn off my brain, started binge-watching some TV Oh man, that that does not help me feel better. <laughs> I guess it works for some people, but my brain needed a rest of some kind. I just wanted to stop thinking for a little while. Turned on the TV, fell into it, gotten a spiral of laziness that I've had a hard time snapping myself back out of and getting productive again. And so I hope any of you going through that sort of thing uh, this time of year it happens a lot our brains kind of go into hibernation mode sometimes and i i hope you're managing it well you're not alone i'm there with you i'm working through it i feel like i'm kind of on my way out i think i'm i think the funk has peaked or dipped i don't know what the right way of saying it is uh it's it's had its most intense amount of funkness none of this sounds correct but i'm i'm on my way past it and i'm starting to get the ball rolling and getting some momentum going again and this podcast helps me so much cuz i got to got to put these out each week it keeps me motivated keeps me learning so i'm thankful that i get to do this i've constructed a life for myself that keeps me stimulated even when i don't feel like doing anything at all even when i'd rather just sit around and binge watch television and uh, feel like a lazy bum i still have to have to do this and stay stimulated and learn and research and i'm always grateful for it after the fact even when i don't necessarily feel like doing it in the moment it's so rewarding and really just expands my conscious experience of this world expands my mind and just endlessly fascinating stuff and it's so rewarding to know that i have so many great listeners like you guys so I hope if you find yourself in a similar rut this time of year that you're getting through it, that you know you're not alone in it, and uh, and also just thank you. Thank you for downloading, for being interested in this stuff. It gives me so much hope for humanity. So I go back and forth with my feelings toward humanity. Sometimes I get a little frustrated with people out there, and uh, and the idea that, that people want to learn this stuff and are interested in studying things to create a better future for all of us gives me a lot of hope. So thank you very much for that. You guys inspire me and keep me going. So thank you and enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with neuroscience professor in the psychology department at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, 
Karen Frick is joining me today. Karen, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's my uh, pleasure. Uh, how are you doing on this lovely fall day? <laughs> Actually, I don't know when this episode's going to come out. It's going to be like the dead of winter, probably by the <laughs> right, time. Right, and I'll be thankful for the 40 degrees. It's not <laughs> yeah. minus 40 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It is uh, much of life is about our expectations. And <laughs> right. kind of, this is come spring, people are going to be in shorts in this weather. Absolutely. I have you on, so I've been telling the listeners about the stand-up science show that I've been kind of the culmination of years of different projects, and I'm just so excited about it, and I was searching around for, I've never actually done a Here We Are podcast in Milwaukee before, Mm -hmm. I don't know why, my brother lives here and stuff, but uh, I had to put in a little extra effort to try to find guests and I went to the to the psychology department page and your work was just all over every I mean <laughs> I imagine some of the other people around the department are a little jealous there if they <laughs> if they saw how prominently you were displayed <laughs> on the page I bet they're a little irritated if I'm being honest That's, your work's I, all over the place it's very exciting I've reached out to you so now my expectations oh, where I'm gosh. like oh my gosh like, well it's worth a try if I can get this superstar here <laughs> I reached yeah. out to you and you were you were on board with being on on stand-up science so we get to find sure. out uh we get to find out in a week or so how that goes which uh, we just had the first show and it was awesome so i think it's gonna be great but yeah but anyway well, thank you for that and thanks for being on the show really this would be fun I'm, I'm excited so i sometimes worry i don't know why i worry about this i sometimes worry that we're gonna run out of topics to talk about on the show i sometimes worry that like we're just gonna run out of science <laughs> I'm, I'm, Don't 200, worry about that. I'm 200 episodes <laughs> in what what science got another another 50 episodes worth of science out oh, there man. you know and and uh, uh but that's never the case and and, no. and it's just endless and so you you do some work with sex hormones and their uh effect on memory and the aging mind we've talked about the aging mind before we've talked about sex hormones we've talked about memory uh before we've never talked about all of those things and i still i looked at your work and i'm like well i would think that i would like know some of this stuff by now and this is still going to be so new to me that i don't even know what questions to ask so this will be exciting um can you give us a little bit a little introduction into you who you are what how you got to into the work that you currently are doing yeah give people a bit of an overview sure sure so i you know i was an undergraduate in college i was interested in well i was, started out as a pre-med but then decided that medicine wasn't for me took introduction to psychology and was fascinated by how the brain worked and thought gosh it would be really cool to study this and try to figure out how i don't know how how the brain works how we are who we are, we remember, you know, we are basically an accumulation of memories. I mean, your memories are distinct to you and my memories are distinct to me. And even siblings raised in the same household have common memories of family events, but then they have different experiences and and that's what makes them unique. But we're still trying to understand exactly how those memories are, are formed. And so when I went to graduate school, um, I started out in the lab um, where we use rats to try to understand 
the you know neural underpinnings of memory. And while I was doing that work, um, my advisor drafted me to to work on some projects related to aging. And so that opened up an entirely new aspect of memory research to me, which was what happens as we get to memories when we get older, like what's typical of normal age-related memory decline and how is that different from sort of pathological memory decline, which you'd see in an Alzheimer's disease or um, a vascular dementia or Lewy body dementia, any of the kind of, any of the, the dementias. So then as a, as a postdoc, so I, you know, I got my PhD um, and then academics, most scientists need to do some training after that before we're ready for a faculty position. So that's called postdoc. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was doing that research, I moved species from rats to mice, which isn't so big of a, of a jump, but enough that there's a learning curve there. Um, really? Yeah. You wouldn't expect that. No, no, what, you wouldn't. What's the... What's the difference? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're all rodents. Um, I, I mean, here now I feel, am I a bad person? Here I've been stereotyping it. No. <laughs> rodent, I've been lumping them all in the same basket. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, if the, you do behavior, particularly if you do learning behavior, rats are actually really... Um, they're actually really nice animals. They are very calm. They're smart. They, they're very easy to train. Mice will do a lot of the learning tasks that you can get rats to do, but, um, but they're a little, they're always a little jumpier. They never quite calm down. Um, and I sometimes refer to them as, as lazy rats. <laughs> it's kind of hard to get them to do some of the more challenging tasks that rats will more easily do. But there are a lot of practical benefits to using mice so. well that's a it's a very pro rat i think that <laughs> i think the general the general population is yeah. typically anti-rat yes. and more well sure they if were any raised of the... with the mickey mouse and everything there's yeah. been the disney's been putting the mice propaganda out there for a while yes. and you're here to set the record straight rat rats are the rats are smart all right they're smart and they they do actually make good pets uh, i don't have rats as pets but really? they're yeah, there are people who who do. They only live about two years, um, so they're short-lived pets. But um, but that actually makes them very useful for studying aging in the lab, mm. because you can get the equivalent of say a ninety-year-old person in about a two-year-old rat, and so it makes it you know they they are very good models systems for aging and disease because their biology is very similar to ours. Um, their brains are very similar to ours. Of course, they're. Their cerebral cortex isn't quite as developed as ours, but they have basically all the same parts. And them being rodents, we can do work in in that species that we can't obviously do in humans because it's not ethically uh, possible. Well, so I imagine that the, probably the hardest part is having to throw them a birthday party every week, right? That's, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, those needy Oh, rats. yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so... So you you got into the, and, and first off, I do like when you're like I got interested in the brain. I remember having it's a funny revelation when the brain takes interest in the brain. I know. I'm like, yes. Oh, you know what? I think this brain's kind of interesting <laughs> to learn. Yeah, it's a little like, self-serving, don't you did, think? <laughs> yeah, but also, why did it take so long to recognize some value and and uh, understand? I was I was nearing thirty by the time I was like, yeah, I should probably. Learn how this thing this in thing my works. head works. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. 
Um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, getting back to that, we got off on a, on a tangent about rodents. But um, but when I was uh, <laughs> when I was doing my postdoc research, I started working with females too because I had only been working with males before, mm. and um, started seeing some interesting sex differences in the course of of memory decline and aging that paralleled what we see in humans. So that started when I once I moved to um, my first faculty position. Then that started. Two lines of research in, in our lab, one that focused on hormonal regulation of, um, of memory and the role that hormone loss in aging, really menopause, mm. plays in, um, in sort of subsequent memory decline. And the other line of research was on um, what we called environmental enrichment, um, which is um, looking at how environmental factors like um, cognitive stimulation, social stimulation, exercise um, regulate brain function. Mm -hmm. And we can model that. And most of us have that already, right? We, we live in social conditions, we go to school, we have jobs and um, get varying amounts of exercise depending on the person. Yeah. Um, so this is like seeing if, if it's worth investing in a Nintendo Wii for the nursing home. Right, basically. in some respects, yeah. You know, the animals in the lab live in a very boring environment. Um, they don't get a lot of stimulation. And so we can we can model the human condition by putting lots of, you know, rodent toys in their cages and giving them access to running wheels, which they love, and they'll just run in all night long, um, let them live with other, you know, other rats, other mice. And that actually works really well, but... We can get into that. That's, but if there's, I mean, there's, if there's nothing else to do, you'll run on a wheel. I, yes. I mean, if a, if a rat's <laughs> running around outside and it comes across a running wheel, it's not hopping on. No, you're right. Running, I don't, no. I don't think. Right? <laughs> it's got more interesting things to do out there. <laughs> okay, yeah. so why is that relevant to your work putting in these uh, enriching different activities? How is that testing memory? Right. So what we can do is put the animals in these enriched environments for certain periods of time. We used to use a month pretty regularly and then test the effects of that treatment on memory. Um, and then we can look in the brains of the animals to see what changed. Um, and we can manipulate the enrichment so we can look at things like exercise alone or cognitive stimulation alone to get a sense of what's really benefiting memory and benefiting the, the brain. So, you know, if you want to put a message out to people, that's, you know, as we get older, it's important to get X number of hours of mm. exercise per week or do crossword puzzles, you know, or the equivalent, you know, when you're 80 years old, really help. It's useful to kind of isolate the aspects of that enriching mm. environment and figure out, you know, what's affecting what in the brain and exercise and cognitive stimulation can have very different effects on the brain. I mean, the net effect is good, but the effect on the brain itself can be different. So exercise tends to increase the number of blood vessels in the brain, which isn't surprising because, you know, oxygen's flowing through our blood. Brains, um, brains can't store oxygen. They can't store glucose, but neurons need those in order to, to function properly. So in order for us to, you know, the brain to be functioning properly, we've got to get blood up there um, mm. regularly. And so the more exercise you're doing, the more growth of capillaries you have in the brain, and that's good. The more blood is going to be flowing to your brain, it's going to function better. Whereas 
a cognitive stimulation, something that's that's intellectually interesting, will tend to grow synapses in the brain, whether which are connections between neurons. Mm. So, hmm. the, like I said, the net outcome is pretty much the same. It's 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 good thing for memory, but just how the brain gets there is slightly different. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just starting to exercise, and it's <laughs> definitely a different feeling. Yeah, than I've, I'm pretty good at stimulating myself and researching things and all of that. Yeah, um, most of us it, are good, and uh, it's easy. To I feel do like that. my editor is going to take out the part that said I'm pretty good at stimulating myself <laughs> and put that on a loop. Um, but <laughs> I'm pretty good at stimulating myself. What if? So what if I'm pretty good at stimulating myself? So this is just blood flow to the brain. What if I like go on? Have you seen one of these inversion tables? That, oh yes. <laughs> I go. Uh, so what if I go on the inversion table? I hang upside down like the original Batman movie, and right. and I and then I do my crosswords. <laughs> There, hanging upside. Am I getting the best of both worlds? I don't think so. Uh, no, that's <laughs> that's a different so. kind of blood flow, right? Uh, yeah, I would think it would and be. Would probably be pretty uncomfortable. Like, yeah, everyone at NASA is just like hanging upside down all the time, trying to <laughs> drench every little bit of glucose yeah. out of the system. That they, I, yeah, I'm not sure it works that way. I don't think it uh, would work that way. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. Is there an example? of something that combines but i guess actually a nintendo wii is maybe not the worst example of something that's a little physical a little problem solving yeah, yeah. at the same time is there other things like that out there probably well, i guess probably not that you're testing because you're no, also trying that, to tease apart these things right, anyway. right right but you know most people who play sports or you know, do some sort of competitive sport you know, there's an aspect of the, the cardiovascular, but then more than likely they're trying to figure something out as they're doing the, the mm-hmm. sports to so say, a, you know, a football player trying to figure out what the best route is to get to, you know, uh, uh, to. Right. To I'm get told to it's like zone. a chess match or something like that. I have a hard time seeing it, but right, that's, right. <laughs> that's yeah. just my lack of appreciation. Right, uh, right. But yeah, I guess, I guess that's a, that's a good example of, hmm. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to think of kind of what my mind goes through when I'm just running. It seems like I I come up with a lot of good creative ideas when I'm running, mm-hmm. but is, it's not a cognitively demanding. No, task. it's hmm. not. But it could be that the increased blood flow to your brain at the time is, you know, causing your neurons to be firing more. I mean, there's obviously the isolation from the kind of the world you get when you're running or, or doing something like that where you know you've you've uh, there's no devices there you know no email no phone whatever you're just focusing on running yeah. that allows your brain that freedom to think that we so often don't get when we're bombarded by signals from other things but there may be a combination of that sort of intellectual isolation plus blood flowing to your brain right right all that stuff i've been reading to fill up the well and then all yeah, of a yeah, sudden exactly. i stopped thinking about You've it got for some a little time while to, like, and to process bubbling and... up to the surface yeah and interesting new novel connections exactly um well so so you can't talk to a rat you can't you see no. a, you see a rat on a you see a rat on a on a wheel and like looks like it's having a ball but like is it just trying to break out uh, we, we don't know so right. how do you how are you testing 
memory in a red. I can I can ask you if you remember what you did yesterday, and or yep. uh, maybe we could play the game. Uh, maybe that's an example. We could play the game memory. We can point right. at cards. I guess rats can point at something. They are you can. Doing something like that. Yep. Yeah, there are a lot of different ways to test memory in rats and and mice. Um, and so the task you choose depends in large part on the, the questions that you're asking. Some of the common ways that we have tested memory in mice um, and rats are to use tasks that tap into their ability to navigate. This is one way. We don't use this all that much now, but there's for aging research, um, there's a common task called the Mars water maze, which is a large tank of water, about six feet in diameter. Um, and it's filled with milky water. So usually you, you uh, put some non-toxic paint in the water to make it white. And under, just underneath the surface of that water is a, an escape platform that's about 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters square. And the room is... Um, uh, the walls of the room have all sorts of cues on them. So the animals can basically form a map of that room that they can then use to navigate. So you put the animals in the water. R- rats and mice are very good at swimming, but they don't like to. I mean, y- y- the water is kind of cold. Uh, it's room temperature, which is colder than you think um, it is. And so you can put them into the water. They will swim very, uh, very naturally around. Um, you train them that there is a platform in the water and that they can escape from the water by climbing onto that platform. Mm. And so when you place them in the water at various navigation points, north, south, east, west, they can very quickly, within a couple of days, learn to navigate to that platform by using the cues that are in the room. You take a left at the Dunkin' Donuts, you go down a couple blocks, you'll see a red mailbox on the right. Exactly. It's the same kind of uh, navigation skills we use to find our way around, you know, our hometown um, Mm. or, you know, any place. Um, where you go, you know, fairly regularly. So we can then use a task like that to we'll test the animals over the course of, say, a week. And what we'll find in, say, a typical aging experiment is that young animals will learn to find the platform, you know, pretty quickly. So by, say, the, the second or third day, they're performing very well finding it quickly. An older animal uh, will learn, but much more slowly. And so then you can use that task to test a lot of different things, among them potential treatments that you think you say, well, performance on this task is associated with a deficit in this part of the brain, in this neurochemical system. Um, so let's see if we can boost that chemical system in some way and re- and reverse that deficit. So that's how a lot of aging research is done, mm-hmm. is trying to figure out what older animals are impaired in and see if we can reverse those changes, see if we can reverse that that memory impairment. Hmm. Another task, one that we've been using quite a bit, is a pair of tasks that use very basic objects. So we call one of them object recognition and one of them object placement. The placement task also tests this spatial memory, but just the animals don't have to swim around. So we simply place the animals in a, in a big white box. It's about two feet by two feet um, and about two feet high. And um, once the animals are habituated to that environment, we put them in there with two objects. So things we can easily buy, like in the hardware store or in the campus bookstore, um, just small objects. 
um, place them near the corners of the box and give the animals a certain amount of time, in our case, 30 seconds to explore those objects. Well, they have to explore the objects for 30 seconds. So that's the training um, portion of the task. And it's completely dependent on them. So they're not, it's just their own intrinsic motivation to explore objects because mice and rats are just intrinsically curious. And so then um, we can bring them back at some point later, a day or two later, and then test how well they remember those training objects. So in the, in the object recognition task, we uh, place the animals back in the box with an object that's identical to one of those training objects and a new object. And if they remember the training object, they'll say, I've explored this before, this is boring, I'm gonna spend my time with this new object. Mm. So the amount of time they're spending with the new object relative to either the old object or relative to chance, which would be 15 seconds. So it's the animal spending the same amount of time with the two objects. That tells us whether they remember the familiar objects. Mm. And similarly with the, the placement task, we just take in the testing phase, we just take one of those identical objects and just move it to a new place in the box. Hmm. And if they explore the old object in the new place, that tells us that they remember where it used to be because where it is now is new. Hmm. So it's really simple, really hmm. simple ways of measuring uh, memory. That's pretty cool, though. Yeah. It, well, side question: This is yeah. this is very silly. If it's if a rat has like a special birthday coming, like the big forty week one, you know, is over right. over the hill. What's like a what's a great toy to present for a rat? Like, do you do you have something that they just love? It? Do you, what do you get them like a new and improved wheel? What do you what's what's their favorite? Mm, they do like wheels. They really like anything they can stick their head into. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, those habitrail tubes are, are great. We don't use those for, for testing, but because um, we want to try to use objects that are interesting, but that they can't, say, get their head stuck in oh, um, or climb on or, yeah. or anything like that. But, uh, but yeah, really anything Okay. It's going to be uh, a happy thing for a So rat. I spent all this time like knitting my rat this <laughs> right. decorative, beautiful thing with like a fun little saying on the thing so it knows how to navigate more. And then and then you throw in the paper towel tube and it loves the paper towel tube. And I'm like, oh, I just spent three months on that. That's right. Well, um, either they will shred and make a nest out of. So they'll be happy with both. <laughs> <laughs> so the rat that, say, has memory deficits. Yes. They're so so they're finding these old things that they should be familiar with. Right. They're find they're checking them out just as if That's it's right. their first time. Exactly. This is like the movie Memento or something right, like right. that. And and so if this is like a if this is a if you're a bored rat, I mean that that's exciting having some memory impairment. Each day is just a brand new adventure for <laughs> I suppose you. So. If if you're if you're a, if you're a human being or imagine a, a rat out in the wild trying to that really life and death the, trying to navigate yeah. uh, a real world environment, this is incredibly impairing. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, imagine a rat can't find its way back to its own nest, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that that would be, be a problem. Or it can't um, recognize a, a food that perhaps made it sick, or it can't remember where, you know, good locations of food might be out in the environment. Um, oh, you know, this is one tree that's got some really great nuts, but I can't find it again. So, you know, it seems very artificial in the laboratory. But those are the kind of skills that 
rodents would need to use out in the wild all the time. They need to be able to to navigate, to find food, to find um, mates, to find their their nest. Um, so those things are are very important to them. Mm. So are you? Uh, excuse me if you already kind of answered this. Yeah. But are you studying? mostly just natural aging or are you mm. are you studying an impairment are are you looking or are you looking into both are yeah. you looking into are you working on alzheimer's rats or are you working on mm-hmm. how does a healthy aging mind just age and how can we uh, help improve how the mind ages yes so we've done a bit of all those things mm-hmm. um right now much of the lab's research is devoted to um, trying to understand in young animals how the optimally functioning system works. Um, so most of that, uh, we haven't talked very much about hormones and mm-hmm. their effects on on aging, um, but that is the bulk of what the what the lab does. And um, and here's why. <laughs> Let's get into it. Yeah. Um, so there is a. Women and men are at differential risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Um, now, granted, women will, you know, statistically live longer than men, so that's a piece of it. Because age is the greatest risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. The longer that we live, the higher our risk, whether we're male or female. It doesn't matter. However, it seems that going through menopause confers an additional risk on women. And we, th- mm. we think that that's because of the aging of their ovaries. So what happens during menopause is that the ovaries basically start to shut down. Um, women are born with all the eggs they're ever going to have, and that's like hundreds of thousands of them. Um, and each cycle, um, it's not just one egg that matures, it's a whole bunch of them. So, And as we age, the number of those eggs just that um, sort of gets wasted, each cycle increases. And so eventually the the supply of eggs in the ovaries disappears. Mm-hmm. And um, so- Now the, you have this incredibly costly egg dis- distribution yeah, center. Right, and it's got nothing. nothing to do. And so the um, the maturation of those eggs in the um, in the ovaries is actually what causes the release of hormones like estrogens and progesterone. Um, well, mm. in conjunction with the brain, there are signals from the, that the brain gives the ovaries to um, to ovulate, and that's what um, helps to you know contribute to the the generation of these hormones in the in the ovaries. But there's aging that happens in the brain, there's aging that happens in the ovaries, and together that leads to menopause, at least it's the the cessation of the menstrual cycle, which um, the definition of menopause is a year without um, having uh, having gone a year without a menstrual period. So it turns out that those hormones from the ovaries, particularly estrogens, are important chemicals for keeping neurons in the brain healthy, mm. um, particularly in parts of the brain that are important for this kind of spatial cognition, spatial navigation, object recognition, and things like that. So um, we think that so post. Puberty in females, when estrogen levels you know start to rise and then they fluctuate during the menstrual cycle, estrogen levels are pretty high. And then once women go through menopause, estrogen, progesterone levels just drop uh, precipitously. I mean, there's 
uh, the levels are very low. So you have these these neurons in the brain that are used to seeing high levels of these hormones. These hormones are good for their functioning. And then suddenly, well, over the course of a year or so, they, they're gone. And now the hormone levels are very low. So these, these, these neurons, which are the information communication cells in the brain, um, they're left without this important chemical that helps them function. And so we think that that leaves them vulnerable to some of the cellular changes that happen in aging and the cellular changes that happen in, in an Alzheimer's disease. And so we think that, that that this hormone loss helps tip the scales for women in favor of, you know, sort of um, memory loss, you know, sort of normal age-related memory loss and then dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So what we've been trying to do, we've studied that a bit in aging females, but um, we think in order to get a better better handle on how these hormones affect memory formation. Um, in a, we've been looking in young animals to try to get a sense of what does this look like in a normal, healthy brain? What are the specific um, molecules in the brain? Um, enzymes, proteins, genes that are necessary for these hormones to make a memory. And then we can see how those things change in mm. aging and after menopause. And that will hopefully lead us in the direction of potential targets for drug development. Like we see the protein X changes in, in, in aging and that's associated with memory loss. Well, let's target protein X and see if we can, you know, augment its function and hopefully reverse the hmm. the, the memory loss. So what is, uh, what's the recipe? How do you, how do you bake yourself a good memory? Uh, what, what's mm. the, what are all of the factors that you're, I mean, it's it just has to be infinite, right? Yeah. I imagine you're going to start uh, listing them, and I'm going to start. No, I won't list them. <laughs> <laughs> Promise, I won't. I'm, I'm going to start recoiling in horror. <laughs> right, exactly. That's which is why I won't tell you what they are. Uh, I mean, you know, the fact is, we we don't really know. I mean, we we have some ideas of of proteins, enzymes, genes, whatever that we we know are important for, say, estrogen to to make a memory, but you know, we've been doing this for 10 years or so, but we're just scratching the surface here. I mean, the brain is just so complicated and, you know, every day, I mean, that's what makes being a scientist exciting, you that's know, because thing, well, every day you learn new scratching things. scratching the surface though. Has any, have any, have any of you scientists got out there and just like dug into the core of a thing? Oh, we're is, always digging. <laughs> but I think the nature of scientists, sure. you know, we're, we're, we realize, just like you were saying earlier, you know, once you, you get into something, you realize right. how much you don't know. And so then you you, yeah. you start digging deeper and then deeper and deeper. The fractal-like nature of yeah. this infinite amount of information yes. that we exist. It is exactly. a little overwhelming. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, it definitely can be. It can be. But that's what makes it interesting and exciting because there's always something new to explore and see, okay, well, this is what we know about our system. Well, okay, you know, so-and-so down the hall is looking at, you know, this other aspect of, of their system. Could we apply that to what we're doing? And could there be some interesting intersections there? And that's, you know, kind of trying to think a little bit out of the box and sort of borrowing from different aspects of, of 
other types of science. Mm. You uh, scratch my surface, I'll scratch yours. Yeah, that right, is. exactly. Maybe our sur- put our surfaces together and we come up with something, <laughs> something interesting. Um, but, you know, now we're trying I'm to... Only, I'm only using surface-based metaphors for the rest of this episode, <laughs> okay. by the way. <laughs> See how far we can take it. Um, so, you know, we're trying to apply what we've learned now in the young animal to models of Alzheimer's disease. So we are working with a mouse model of Alzheimer's that was generated or is generated by my collaborator in Chicago, Mary Jo Ledoux, who developed this really cool model of Alzheimer's that that has uh, genetic mutations that are common to the early uh, onset form of the disease. But it also has a genetic it, it expresses a genetic um, risk factor for late onset disease. So I, I, I don't know the extent to which you're aware, but there are kind of two forms of the disease. So there's a... It's It's been a while since we've talked Alzheimer's on the okay. show, and I'm sure my listeners and myself would appreciate okay. uh, <laughs> uh, at, at least some, some uh, general Some intro. general background. Yeah, yeah. so there's... There are people who develop Alzheimer's disease early on, and by early I mean sort of 40s and 50s. Um, that early onset Alzheimer's disease, or sometimes it's called familial Alzheimer's disease because it does tend to run in families, um, is that's associated with specific genetic mutations. So there are some inf- unfortunate families around the world who pass down this genetic mutation um, through the generations. and people with that mutation will get the disease. Um, and so that's kind of scary. People don't know they're going to get the disease usually until after they've, you know, gone up, grown up, gotten married, had children, and now pass that down to their children. Mm. So it just kind of perpetuates. Um, and there are a number of those mutations. But those families are fairly rare. Most people who develop Alzheimer's disease develop the late onset form. And that tends to strike people in their 60s and beyond. And that's not associated with any particular gene mutation per se. Um, it doesn't necessarily run in families. So if you know you had a parent or grandparent with Alzheimer's, that doesn't mean that you're going to get it. It might potentially increase your chances, but maybe not. But there, there is a specific risk factor um, called apolipoprotein E. Um, that does increase your risk if you have it. There's there's three variants of this gene. There are two, three, and four. I'm not sure what happened to one. So <laughs> yeah. Who came up? I don't know. Uh, oh, man. Sometimes yeah. there's things like that in science yes. that just really irritate me. <laughs> yeah. There's a few. Out there. Like I, I get, uh, I, I don't like the... Um, the sympathetic oh and, parasympathetic and parasympathetic I don't yeah. know who I've never heard a good explanation for where that came why would you not just like create a new word for it instead of repurposing an yeah. old word that people have a completely different association meaning for, yeah. and meaning for yeah but yeah science I, can be irritating like that you're, you are correct yes Okay, so there's yeah. uh, there's so there's there's three uh, three variants we call alleles, um, yep. and uh, there are e two, three, and four. Um, three seems to be pretty neutral with respect to risk of the disease. So we and we all carry two of these. So if you have one or two copies of three, 
it's pretty neutral. Your risk is no greater or lesser than anybody else. If you have two, which is actually fairly rare, um, you see that seems to be actually fairly protective for the disease. Hmm. But if you have four, one or two copies of four, your risk of developing the disease is much greater. That doesn't mean you will get it. It's just that most people, more people who have Alzheimer's disease have one or two copies of, of apolipoprotein E4 than mm. don't. So it turns out that um, women who have the E4 um, variant have the highest um, risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. So relative to men who have E4 and relative to men or women who have E3 or, or E2. Mm. So what Mary Jo, so Mary Jo developed this animal model that carries several of those early onset mutations and also expresses the human form of this apolipoprotein E in the two, three, and four variants. And so we've been working with the the threes and the fours in the lab to both look at sex differences in um, incidence of memory loss, as well as looking at the responses of those mice to estrogen treatment, the females to estrogen treatment. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so far, so what we're hoping to do there is to see if we can replicate the sex differences and the responses to estrogen treatment that are seen in humans, and then look in the brains of these animals to see if we can find these sort of biological correlates of those behavioral differences to see if that may give us some insight into what's causing those differences in people. Hmm. So, so if you're in the future, so now they have, well, first off, I guess we can talk about uh, um, current technology. We have, mm-hmm. there's all these genetic testing services that people can use. So is this yeah. is this something that they can have tested currently? I would think that? so. I mean, I've right. been... I've been tested, um, but as a part of one of my colleagues' research studies. So it's certainly something that it's can very easily be done in the context. Mm. It's just a blood test, so it can be done in the context of research studies. I don't. I've never tried any of the um, like twenty three and Me, right? Whatever right. I've never tried that to see what. I don't know if you can choose what genes you want to look at, or they just give you you know a ton of information and you you sift through it. But I don't mm. see why you couldn't get that information from. Uh, in the future, and this is, uh, you know, there's there's going to be controversy as as we talk about like designer babies eventually. If yeah, you can get yeah. in there and and make changes and like, mm-hmm. okay, you want uh, you want your baby to have all their limbs or whatever, so you tweak a couple things. Mm-hmm. Well, now you're not sure that you know being a redheaded boy that might be a little bit of a so maybe we'll tweak that a little bit too. And there's going to be varying degrees of which it's yeah. going to be all very reasonable at, at the start, and then maybe it'll be a slippery slope. But but people might you you might think like well give a if you can if you can go in there and tweak a few things give your give your baby a two right yeah so, exactly so why hasn't uh, why hasn't evolution given our babies a two over time? Is it just is yeah. it just the case that, um, like you said, it, it kind of uh, it happens later on in life? They've already bred. They've exactly. already the genes have already been passed on, and it hasn't been caught. And that's yep. basically that there, is exactly there's it. there's no there's no like disadvantage to having two that we know. There's no advantage to having three or four that that we know of. Right, not early on in life. So mm. not during the the key years, which are the reproductive years 
There's mm. no evolutionary advantage to having two, three, or four in terms of our of our Darwinian fitness, you mm-hmm. know, which is passing, you know, reproducing, passing fitness, our yeah. gene, genes to to the next generation. So this is only something that, you know, uh, becomes problematic later in life. And humans have never, as a species, lived as long as we're living now. Mm. So, you know, we're encountering all of these diseases that our species has never had to deal with before. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's never been the ability to sort of edit out those bad genes. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I suppose if you, you know, if you knew that all people with X gene, you know, would get this horrible disease, then, you know, you could say, well, those people maybe shouldn't reproduce and shouldn't. If you're be having your 23 and Me like dating profile, yeah, or right. something like that. People are right. like, yes, this dude looks pretty good now, but believe me, <laughs> it's going to be a lot of memory issues. You're going to be. He's never right. going to remember to put the toilet seat down. And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I know it's like a creepy conversation. Yeah, for that's where it have. gets scary. It's unsettling for people, and yeah. but these are also conversations that you know. This is the reality of the world that we live in. I yeah, think. and you know, I think increasingly it's going to be something that we're going to have to deal with because of techno- because the technology has gotten to the point where we can edit out specific genes with CRISPR technology, mm-hmm. um, that's basically within our grasp to do those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's in part, you know, one of the potential benefits to humanity of that kind of technology is editing out disease-causing genes for, you know, maybe, you know, what pick pick the disease, cystic fibrosis, um, multiple sclerosis, anything, right? Sure. If you could prevent your, your child from having some devastating disease, you wouldn't do that. But as you say, there are serious ethical yeah. ramifications of doing that. But then if you're not doing it, are you giving them that disease? Right, <laughs> like right, if you right. have yeah, the choice, exactly. I mean, it's... People may it, feel at some point in the future pressured to do that because everybody else is or, you know, they don't want their, you know, see their child suffer or their child may come back someday and say, why didn't you, when you had the opportunity, you know... Right, right. You know, I didn't want to have this disease, but you let me get it. I mean... Yeah, I, I could have, I, I could have like whatever genes like make you a little bit cooler. I could have, my parents, I was like just like a couple more of those. Sure. I went to mind. I'm like I'm fine enough. Well, I guess I'm a cool enough guy. But I wouldn't have minded chuck a couple more of those in there. Yeah. Why not? Um, I, um, <laughs> I, I mean, these are. I, I, I hope that. I think that people. I don't know if this is the case or what exactly causes these feelings because it's I, I get that these are uh, serious and complicated uh, ethical questions for anyone at every every level but it seems like when you are interested in science and know a little bit more about it you understand the value in kind of having these open conversations whereas if you just like see a headline on the news and that's all that you know about it science seems like a much scarier thing than it uh, than it really i mean reality is kind of a scary thing absolutely and we're just kind of trying to get a a clear picture of what reality is using the scientific method which is only a tool and and it's just you know when even talking about, say, gender differences is something that's exceptionally controversial, and maybe, maybe it should be because maybe there has been a long history of people saying, like, uh, X gender is better than that, which scientist right. is never saying that. They're no. saying there are these differences. Differences. Yes. If, yeah. if you, uh, uh, say, a listener thinks a difference is bad, that's on you. No, science isn't saying that. Right. Um, and, and, but the part of the reason why, why, uh, 
uh, this is such an important conversation is like, I'm, I'm pretty sure anyone would agree that it's good to know if, say, females are more susceptible to Alzheimer's. Right. And, the, and this right. is, uh, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. This is, there's been a history of, of, uh, of, of not testing, say, female rats in a, in a lab. And you kind of mentioned that you worked with a male males rats before. That's before. right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So you're absolutely right that scientists aren't assigning a, never sign like a value judgment to mm. you know, we find a difference that's that's just a fact it's not better or worse it's you know it, it's a it's a thing that we've observed in the laboratory and it may be a thing that we've observed in the laboratory under specific conditions that's not sort of general to everything so if you say and it well, might be wrong too yeah absolutely. is always open to being wrong absolutely and that's i think part of why science can be complicated and difficult for the general public is that um, studies will come out, they hear about it on the news, and maybe and they conflict. So maybe, you know, six months ago, there was a, you know, study that said, you know, eating broccoli is good. You know, a year from now, another bro- another story comes out that says eating broccoli is bad for you. And then people don't know what to believe because they've heard both. Right. Right. And so um, not to mention someone's doing one of those stories. They call you for what it is. And then they write down what they think you said. Right. Scramble it all up. uh, Get it all wrong. Turn it into a sensationalized headline. And it's not everyone can be a, you know, learner, charming podcast host. I mean, I could go on and on. But (laughs) right. um, right. (laughs) But but, uh, but there's a bit of there is a bit of that out there, too. And I only I only say it just because, like, I do the same thing of. Everything's very clickbaity these days. Yes, and science true. can be as well. So. That's true. That's true. I, I mean, I think you, you know, universities, university offices usually put out these press releases for new findings, and usually at that level, the the coverage is good and accurate, and you're working with them to put out the best story. But then once it gets beyond the university level, then who knows what happens? Mm-hmm. You know, as you say, um, different outlets want to want people to go to their outlets so they make this story maybe seem more sensational Mm -hmm. Um, but that's why i think you know science education even if somebody isn't going to go into science as a career but educating kids in what the scientific method is how you evaluate data that you might see in a in a story in the news um is really important because people need to data are are what they are right and even the, the scientists who collect the data are interpreting the data in whatever way it makes sense to them. Mm-hmm. Um, their interpretation may be wrong. Um, it may be right or maybe something, you know, kind of in between. Maybe they kind of got it right. Um, but that's why it's important. I mean, science literacy among the general public is really important for them to be able to to take the information that they get from press releases or various, you know, news sources and and try to figure out for themselves, does this really make sense? Does it seem like they've interpreted these data correctly? Are they using the proper controls? Know what a control is, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's important, you know, to, to make sure that the studies are done properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and just for people to understand what goes into scientific research, what scientific research can and can't tell you mm-hmm. um it's just kind of important for people to understand the information they get bombarded with on a daily basis yeah it's not perfect because scientists aren't perfect no scientists are people and that's why there's peer review processes that's right the, it's I, I you know i i sell some ads on the show sometimes i get probably you know, i get money for 
for doing this. So I try to make sure that it's products that I'm like interested enough in selling and, right. and, um, mm-hmm. and, but I also, you know, I see the product and I go like, okay, you know, this is, here's these good qualities about this product. I might see something about it that I don't really care for or whatever. And it maybe annoys me a little bit. So maybe I don't mention that part. Maybe mm-hmm. I kind of play up some of the, the bigger aspects a little bit, but our kind of brains do this to our consciousness sometimes all, all of the time and telling yes. us and telling us a story of, of uh, what is going on in life and how much we know about a given thing. And and academics are, are susceptible to all of this. And this is part yes. of why the scientific method as a whole is is trying to correct some of those uh, individual biases and, and issues. Absolutely, absolutely true. And, you know, work that's replication of the, the science is really important. So if I find something in my lab, somebody else in another lab across the country or in another, you know, another country entirely um, should be able to get the same thing if that's a mm-hmm. real effect. Um, so, you know, sometimes you see reports of people studying the same thing and maybe maybe the data are consistent with the study that came out six months ago maybe they're inconsistent and so then you have to say if they're not consistent well what's different about those two studies did they study a different a different population of people how could that population of people differed in some important way was there some way in which they ran the study that caused the data to be different in the two studies so it's, it's maybe sometimes easy for people to be dismissive of conflicting reports in the news, but it's important to try to think about, you know, why those inconsistencies might be there. And mm-hmm. yeah, um, well, okay, so uh, so back to uh, uh, back to Alzheimer's two, th- yeah. two threes and fours. Yes. <laughs> um, here's the broad thing that I want to try to get at, yeah. um, and and you can figure out uh, how to navigate the answer in the way of your choosing but rather than breaking it up into a bunch of small questions okay let's just cut straight to the point i want to know uh, you got one of these fours mm-hmm. what can you hopefully as a scientist now what can you maybe do one day what can you at least tell me in terms of information about uh, about this what can i expect and what can i potentially do to okay this is probably going to get me eventually but Mm -hmm. how do i get another good 10 years in and then uh and then i also want to talk about the late onset um because and this is like just wild like hypothetical if you were like uh um, I don't know, like a comedian or something that had some alcohol dependency issues and stuff like that for a yeah. while. And now you're trying to correct it and yeah. like go around and learn and stay stimulated. Like, are you going to have to be worried about this? Just like a hypothetical yeah. uh, <laughs> question. So so if you can kind of address the, it's sort of the same question to those two separate um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, types of Alzheimer's. Right, right. So I'd say at this point, since... Honestly, the treatments for Alzheimer's disease are not particularly good right now. I mean, there are some treatments that we can give patients, but they mitigate symptoms for relatively short amount of time. And and the the thing, the primary thing is they don't address um, the key pathologies. They don't stop the the disease from um, from progressing. Um, so, the what you could best do at this point is to try to delay the onset or prevent the onset for as long as humanly possible. And at this point, the best ways to do that are likely lifestyle changes. So diet, 
exercise cognitive stimulation. Go, you know, going back to some of the things we were talking about earlier in the in the animal models, <clears throat> but keeping exercise will help keep your your heart healthy, keep blood flowing to your brain. Um, many forms of dementia or several forms of dementia are caused are vascular dementias. They're caused by a buildup of plaques in our arteries um, that constrict blood flow to the brain. Um, so exercise helps with that. There are certain foods that are healthier for our brains than others. Um, you know, vegetables, fruits, you know, I mean, a, 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 a common sense diet yeah. um, is, is better for your brain. Um, it's also going to keep your body healthier too. So, you know, there's a whole um, cascade of, you know, your body's going to be healthy. It's going to be good for all the organs in your body, including your brain. Um, and then the cognitive stimulation is going to build synapses in your brain. So there's this idea um, in um, in some aspects of literature that uh, people can build a cognitive reserve in the brain that can help you help protect you from an Alzheimer's disease or a Parkinson's disease or, or any kind of um, neurodegenerative types of disease. So that people who have um, say intellectually stimulating jobs or lifestyles that builds more connections in your brain between neurons that if you lose a few of those connections, like you're still okay. Mm -hmm. um, but once you get to a point where you've lost a critical mass of those connections, then you start to see the visible evidence of, of memory loss or confusion or difficulty in judgment and planning those kind of hallmarks of of dementia so so the idea is the more connections that we have the better buffered the brain is going to be um, for potentially losing a few of those mm. yeah it's it's uh it's funny because no, none of this stuff ever really seems like rocket science no. necessarily yet still harder to put into action Absol than yes. rocket science yes. is it's it's uh Behavior rockets change. we have we have figured out uh, we have rockets figured out trying to prime uh the human population into uh, doing you know regular old diet and exercise doctor recommended is a it's is a so nightmare. hard it's yeah. so hard because we're, we're absolutely bombarded i mean our our, our modern 21st century lifestyle mm -hmm. is very sedentary um food that's bad for us is cheap and easy to get and no. it tastes good, so it's it's very um, it can be challenging to get people to think about this. And really, we need to get younger people thinking about this because there are you know tangible benefits. It seems to you can definitely benefit as an older person from starting an exercise program, from starting a sort of a cognitive enrichment program. So it's definitely something that could be started at any point and help your brain, but it's better if people enact these changes when they're young or they just they they learn good habits when they're young and they just stick with them for the for the rest of their lives mm -hmm. so i've tried here so i teach an aging course here called the aging brain um and at first i've taught this for almost 20 years uh, both here and at yale where i was a professor before and at first i was like i don't know how many young people would be interested in this this topic um, because most young people aren't thinking about what's going to happen in their 70s. Yeah, I, I kind of assumed I'd be dead by now. At <laughs> <laughs> 38, I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess this is big, I have a long ways to go. You do, now. yep. But, you know, you'd be surprised. It's, you know, the course pretty much fills up every semester, and students mm -hmm. seem to be engaged in thinking about not only themselves, but sort of 
the aging of society because mm-hmm. that's actually a huge problem right now. Um, if you look at the demographics in this country and, and in most of the sort of uh, industrialized first world countries, our, our population used to be skewed more towards young people. We had many more young people than we had older people. It was sort of a, a triangular population distribution with lots of young people on the bottom and very few older people on the top. But we've now moved to a more uh, rectangular or, or square kind of distribution where there's not as many, you know, maybe as, as many younger people as there are older people because we're living longer. Mm-hmm. I mean, medical advances have helped us live longer, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. But birth rates have decreased. Um, and so, you know, we have, you know, right now we have an aging baby boomer generation mm-hmm. that um, is getting older and we're starting to see many, many more instances of diseases like Alzheimer's, like mm-hmm. cancer, things that are generally associated with age. You know, too many old people. Couldn't have said it better myself. Glad, <laughs> glad you said it, not me. I mean, I wouldn't have gone there. But uh, <laughs> no, this, this is, yeah. I, I mean, this is, you know, there's birth control these days. Yeah. We've made a lot of headway in our sex education and everything else. And, and the climate has, has changed dramatically. And I have uh, a couple of my uh, best friends are having their first kid now at, I think, 38 years old. Right. This is a very different thing. Than, it's a very different thing. People yeah. are, you know, everybody, most everybody goes to college. They typically, you know, push off getting married, having children until they've established a, a career. Oh, that's just, that's more common now than it used to be. And families are much smaller, mm-hmm. um, except here in Wisconsin. I'm sometimes surprised at how many people yeah. come from, you know, families of nine, 10, you know, kids. But, mm-hmm. Uh, but so with fewer young people and more more of us living longer, I mean, it's it's wonderful that people are living longer. Don't get me wrong. Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's got significant implications for yeah. health care for, for all of these older people. I mean, you see memory care facilities popping up all over the place mm-hmm. um, to help handle the, the memory impaired population. Mm. Um you know, well, to cite some statistics, um, the Alzheimer's Association has puts the number of Americans with Alzheimer's at currently at about five million, mm-hmm. um, and they're projecting twenty fifty to there be just about fifteen million. So a tripling in the next thirty years. Um, the CDC recently had a report for twenty sixty to be about sixteen million. Mm. That's a lot of people with Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's is a very long disease to mm-hmm. deal with um, for most patients. And so that's a drain on, it's obviously hard for the patient. It's hard for their families. It's a drain on the caregivers financially, emotionally, and on our healthcare system mm-hmm. to, to care for people for a decade or so with Alzheimer's disease. It's, it's a tremendous cost. Yeah, it's it's that is a because we can keep people physically yes. alive longer and longer, but if we don't figure out this brain stuff, yeah, uh, yikes. Well, I have my guests each week plug a charity of their choice. You got you got us uh, throw us a bone there. How how can how can people get involved? How can people help? Right, right. So the charity that I would encourage people to to check out is the Alzheimer's Association. Um, the Alzheimer's Association is a is a nationwide association that has regional chapters um, that have services to help people who are 
diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease or, or other dementias. They don't necessarily just limit their services to Alzheimer's, um, but patients and families and community members. So they run um, a number of different programs that um, for for patients, for instance, to get you know groups to get patients together, to get caregivers together, to talk amongst themselves, to you know, air frustrations and um, get information about services that they might be able to tap into to get connected with physicians in in the community. They have a, I believe it's a 24-7 number that you can call for help. You know, you're desperate in the middle of the night, you can call them up, they can can help you and connect you to somebody that, that can help. They also raise a lot of money for research too. So, the fall is the time for the Alzheimer's walks, and there are tons of them throughout the country, even in, in the same area. So here in southeastern Wisconsin, um, we have the southeastern Wisconsin chapter of the Alzheimer's Association based in, in West Allis, and they run, I think it's at least a dozen different walks in the area. So we had the one in Milwaukee back on in mid-September, um, but there's ones in, in Waukesha and Port Washington and, and all over that are, that are happening. So people raise money. Um, as individuals or as teams, you can get together with, with families and friends and just have a whole team that that walks for like a mile or something. It's very easy. The one here in Milwaukee is just right along the lake. So it's a really pretty, um, nice morning morning walk. And that, that, that money goes towards funding research of all sorts. So the Alzheimer's project that I mentioned to you earlier with working with uh, the Alzheimer's mice, that project's being funded by the Alzheimer's Association. Hmm. But they also fund work with, with people, so clinical trials. These, the association has a, a trial match program that will allow you, if you're interested, if you're a, a patient or just a, an average person in the community who's not associated with Alzheimer's disease at all, um, you can volunteer to be a part of research studies where they'll study, you know, maybe give you a battery of tasks, maybe do a brain scan. They're always looking for, for normal subjects too. So that's, you know, in addition to, to patients, they're looking for just normal people to see what normal is so you can compare um, the Alzheimer's patient data to. Mm. But trial match can help match people with clinical trials that are in the area that they could participate in. So the association does a lot of good for people, um, both in terms of helping patients and families, but also furthering research. Um, mm. They sponsor a, a yearly um, conference that's held at various locations throughout the world that gathers Alzheimer's researchers together to talk about their data, present their data. Um, and that's a, a great outlet for people to get new ideas and um, I've been to that several times, and it's it's been uh, very interesting and beneficial to my own research. Wonderful. So, uh, yeah, and and hopefully it'll just uh, it be, become a more of the public conversation, and and people raise awareness. Maybe this will be something that, uh, as a society, as a species, we start considering a little more. Maybe maybe taking a little bit of that rocket money and moving it into like <laughs> Alzheimer's research, right? things that like right. actually improve the human condition. That's right. more the world I'd prefer to live in. Um, but uh, but yeah, and then um, quick plug for me, uh, my organization is Rats uh, Rats with Friends. It's an organization that like gets the word out about how good rats are and uh <laughs> yeah, people have been way too hard on rats for way too long so just 
they make great pets. They're terrific. They're very well behaved. Uh, so 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 make make a friend with a rat today. <laughs> and uh, th- thank you, Karen, for for joining me on on the show. This oh, is so enlightening and and what a d- terrific conversation. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Next week on the Here We Are podcast, talking about anthropologist and paleontologist John Hawks, author of the book Almost Human, where they break down a couple of major historic findings in paleontology. Two of our common ancestors, our ancestors' cousins that were found, and the story of a lot of hearing about what life is like for an archaeologist, for a paleontologist, and really great interview terrific book check out almost human you can also go to johnhawks.net to find out more about him get a little preview before the episode if you so desire and please check out the stand-up science tour which is coming to this week at the end of february doing scranton pennsylvania providence rhode island boston massachusetts newmarket new hampshire portland maine harrisburg virginia Richmond, Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia, in March, Raleigh, North Carolina, Greensboro, North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, St. Louis, Missouri, Boulder, Colorado, Denver, Colorado, and there's more filling in working on it guys so uh check that out if you can the shows have been going real well it's a great time i hope you can make it and we'll talk with you next week those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorite helpless people reading The needle spins a circle's back It cuts a groove, but I'm okay with that I let the time wander by The waiting room inside my mind Filled with faces, missing hearts I cast the characters, just play their parts I run my mouth faster I run my mouth faster now Run my mouth faster. Run my mouth. Run my mouth faster.